Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Seth is a New York Times op-ed contributor, a visiting lecturer at the Wharton School, and a former Google data scientist. His book, Everybody Lies, explores big data and what we can learn from it. Everybody lies, to pollsters, to their friends and family, to themselves, but they don't often lie to Google, and Seth has utilized Google Trends to uncover hidden information on racism, sexism, and more. So on the phone right now with us, we have Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, author of Everybody Lies. And Seth, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. Um, so to start off, just very basic. Um, so you work a lot with big data. For someone who has absolutely no experience in using any of this data, extracting any of this data, um, how would you have them go about it? Well, I think uh, I, I have a paper with Hal Varian, a short paper on a primer on how to use Google data, which is a big source of my data. So Google Trends is a very underutilized tool among researchers. Uh, it's not the most intuitive. Sometimes it's a little confusing to make sense of exactly what all the numbers mean. But if you combine that primer and start playing around with Google Trends, I think after a while you do kind of understand uh, what the data means and how to interpret it and can get some real insights on just about any topic. And so Google Trends, this is just, it's accessible to anyone? You don't need any special kind of pass for it? Exactly. Uh, Google Trends is accessible to anyone uh, and is a really useful source. You can basically see uh, any search term, uh, how frequently it's made in different parts of the United States and different parts of the world and how frequently it's been made uh, over time. So whatever topic uh, you're interested in, there are probably some insights in that in that data. And just out of curiosity, Seth, um, is this primer available um, anywhere online for, say, students yeah, to it's use? Yeah, on my website at sethsd.com. Great, fantastic. Um, so besides Google Trends, are there any other um, useful tools out there for mining data like this? I know Google's a very big one, but... I think Facebook advertising is another source that I use sometimes in the book and can be useful. Uh, it's a little more complicated, but if you set up an advertising account, you can uh, see how many people like a particular thing in different parts of the country or different parts of the world. Excellent, excellent. Um, and of course, another big part of acquiring this data and something I found really interesting in the book is Besides knowing all these technical ways to get it, going through Google Trends, going through Facebook, like you talked about, um, it's also knowing what questions to ask of the data. So how do you sort of look at what you have and try to figure out what questions to ask? Yeah, well, one of my theses uh, is that it makes sense to ask the questions now. Uh, mm -hmm. I think because the internet has given us so much new data, you can really be ambitious in the questions you ask. So I think, uh, you know, traditionally, definitely the training that I got, I had a PhD in economics. Uh, there was maybe an idea that you kind of 
do an extension of something that other people uh, were, were, were doing. And uh, I found that, and, and, you know, a, a, a quick kind of uh, addition to, to other people's work, and I found that with, with the new data on the internet, it really makes sense to go after big questions. How many Americans are racist? Uh, how many men are gay? Uh, do, does advertising work? Like those questions, uh, in some sense, the way to think about that question is you're just asking a, the biggest question in a, in a certain area. I think that that's really a, a wise approach when you have such uh, remarkable new data that never existed before. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of those questions, um, for example, talking about how um, how many Americans are racist more than, you know, we might think on the surface, um, you talk in the book about how you would um, put different things into Google Trends to, um, you know, look for different search words. Um, so how do you kind of figure out what, um, I guess, how do I want to say it, what questions to, um, what to ask Google in order to get the answer to this bigger question? Yeah, I think there are really two approaches to using Google data. One big risk of this data source is cherry picking. Because there are so many potential searches, you can just pick any kind of old search and say, oh, this is racism or this is uh, some type of sexual, you know, this is anxiety, this is a search that needs depression. And then, uh, you know, and then pick the one that gives you the results that you want uh, that makes for a publishable paper. I think that's something that we have to fight against uh, in, in academia. I think there are really two approaches that I recommend for that. One is pick one word that dominates all the rest. So for racism, there's kind of one word that is the quintessential racist word against African-Americans is much more common on Google than any other search. And that really limits the possibility for cherry picking. Another tool that I talk about in the primer is that uh, with how is that there's uh, topics. So Google actually themselves do correlate, do, do uh, analyzes different searches and puts them into basket. You can just choose a topic of searches uh, related to, to uh, a basket of searches related to a topic. So that's really useful because it kind of ties your hand. It lets Google do all the decision for you. I think one of the big advantages of Google search data as well, relative to other big data sources, a lot of people are hearing about big data now. They want to analyze anything. And a lot of uh, big data sources are really, really messy. You maybe collaborate with a company and you get their data and it's a total mess. It's really hard to uh, analyze. It's hard to categorize what different things mean. They're all just bots that are producing uh, some, of the, some of the data. But Google kind of does all of that hard work for you. Uh, they eliminate the bots. They categorize the searches. Uh, and then they kind of give you a much more curated, cleaner data uh, that uh, allows you to, to answer the social science questions. Hmm. So what are, what are some other problems or pitfalls with big data? I think cherry picking is a big one. There are some random ones that you learn as you go along, and I think uh, there haven't been enough methodologists uh, studying some of this. So uh, Pew Research recently released a report that I thought was excellent uh, analyzing uh, Google Trends data, and they really also hammered home what they had learned when they did the study about methodology, because Pew Research uh, has an army of people who have really been uh, focusing on methodology, usually for surveys, and, and how do you weight things properly? How do you uh, interpret these changes? What's your standard error? Uh, and these issues haven't really been dealt with for some of the bigger data sources, and they're just being dealt with now. Uh, and, and it's an exciting area if you are interested in methodology to apply some of the uh, 
some of the learnings from traditional sources such as surveys to Google to uh, some of the new sources such as Google Trends. Uh, there are some random pitfalls that you come upon as you as you see the data. One thing I've learned over time that there was no other way to know this except by doing a lot of analyses is sometimes Washington DC can be a strange state on Google Trends data to, to interpret uh, because the people who work in, in Washington DC are very different from the residents of, of Washington DC demographically. Uh, so a lot of the searches uh, if you compare them to the demographics of D.C., if you compare the search data to the demographics of D.C., you might get misleading results because it's really the uh, commuters that make a lot of the, the searches on Google. So the, there, are, there are new issues that come up when you're dealing with uh, Internet data. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked a bit about cherry picking, um, which can be a problem when you're the one who's going in and um, actually getting the data yourself. But it's also interesting when you are on the other end of it, when someone is presenting data to you, um, in terms of a graph or maybe some other image that's showing you some data. Um, and oftentimes with that, you don't have uh, as much context for that data. So you don't really know um, how that fits into the larger picture. So what, um, what types of questions could you ask to make sure that you're really getting the full story when it comes to receiving data from someone else? Yeah, I guess kind of, I think it, it is harder because you don't really know, ideally you want to know everything that's tested because one danger of cherry picking is people just keep on doing analyses until they find something that works and then show you show you it. I think in general you just have to wait until things are replicated until you fully trust them. I think a first graph, no matter who it comes from, is always a hypothesis really and, and kind of a, a direction for potential first uh, further research. Mm. Uh, so, Seth, can you talk to us a little bit about um, some advances in big data and how um, people like you are able to use it, how we can maybe see applications of big data um, change society, benefit humanity going forward? There are, there are a lot of, uh, of, of advantages. One of them I talk about a lot is the honesty in some of the sources, and, and it's only certain big data sources. So people have been shown to lie. Uh, there's something called social desirability bias. Uh, in surveys where people will make themselves look good, but on Google they tend to be much more honest. So if you're researching a sensitive area, which can be very, very important for many social science topics as well as health topics, uh, you can get more honest information from Google search data. Another big advantage of big data is that you can zoom in on small subsets of a population. The average survey, uh, which is maybe a traditional data source, uh, may only have a thousand, two thousand people. It's not going to really have increment, have a robust information about small subsets of the population. Maybe people in certain towns or cities or age uh, or particular age. Uh, but with big data, it's so big, so comprehensive. It has big samples even for small subsets of the population. So you can see what's happening in any nook and cranny of. Uh, a country or uh, small subsets of time, what's happening minute to minute, uh, and that's I think uh, can be very exciting for all kinds of areas of research. Mm. Um, so I think one primary example of being able to use this big data um, in terms of a recent event where the result was not what it appeared to be on the surface. Um, the recent election that we had with um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, did you, um, do you talk about that in the book at all, in terms of how... I do. So, yeah, the, the surveys were, uh, of course, incorrect. They mm-hmm. said that uh, Hillary Clinton, they predicted a Hillary Clinton victory. Uh, the question is, is there information on the internet 
that could potentially be used uh, to make better predictions in the future. I think we're at an early stage of this research and we're going to need a lot more people, a lot more political scientists and uh, methodologists in particular to really uh, understand this data and understand some of the strengths and weaknesses and how we might weight this data. But uh, my preliminary research does suggest there is information in online behavior on which way people will vote. Uh, it's not always the simplest uh, metric, you might think. It, uh, people have asked me a while, for a while because I've, I've, I've been doing all this research with Google searches. Can you predict uh, who, uh, vote totals based on Google searches? And traditionally, they have thought uh, that the big idea has been, you know, how many times people search for a candidate, does that predict they're going to vote for them? So if people search for Trump more than Clinton, will they vote for Trump? If, if people search for Clinton more than Trump, uh, will they vote for Clinton? And the answer that, to that is clearly no. There are too many reasons to search for a candidate. You may search for a candidate because you like him or her. You might also search for that candidate because you dislike him or her. Uh, so there's really little information in how frequently a candidate is searched. But there's a class of searches that is very revealing. Uh, a big theme of searches, political searches on Google, people search for both candidates' names. They search for Clinton-Trump polls or the Trump-Clinton debate. About 26% of searches that included the word Clinton in the previous election cycle also included the word Trump. And there is a fascinating, I think, clue in these searches, the order in which the candidate appears. If uh, people search Trump before Clinton, they're more likely to go Trump's way. If they search Clinton before Trump, they're more likely to go Clinton's way. And that's been true in every election, presidential election. We've had Google searches both nationally and at the state level, where states that have uh, have searched the, the one candidate first more frequently have been more likely to go for that candidate. So I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to replace polls, but I think it will be a supplement to polls. And particularly as we have more elections to build our models, and more methodologists to understand exactly how we might weight this data. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, so, Seth, another question. What, um, what are some ways that you think that students who are, um, let's say they're using your book in a class or as part of a freshman common read, uh, what are some ways that you think they can apply the lessons in this book to courses? I've been hearing a lot. I, I, I taught a class uh, for, at Warden. Uh, this but this past semester and they really like the new tools I think for students it's really exciting to see Google Trends or Facebook ads and then to uh, play around with it and, and kind of you know see things that they find or patterns that they find and I almost think that it's uh, you don't even want to put too much structure because students uh, tend to be so creative uh, and have such interesting perspectives uh, that they tend to find things uh, that you wouldn't have even thought a lot of my students uh, did a lot of research in different countries because they came from different countries, so they uh, had insight into things that were going on in Russia or uh, Syria or uh, lots of other countries that I would have never even thought to ask uh, because I didn't have any knowledge in those areas. Uh, so in general, I think uh, even more so than exercises, a lot of it is just, uh, just play around with the data and see what you find, and students have, uh, tend to really enjoy that. All right, great. Um, Seth, one more question for you. Um, and we ask this of all of our guests on this podcast. Um, since it's primarily for teachers, educators, students, who was your favorite teacher? Uh, I like Miss Maloney, uh, my uh, ninth grade uh, English teacher. I was, uh, was, was definitely one of my favorites. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Seth. This has been great. Great. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.